Hey everyone, thanks for joining today. How's it going? Yeah, it's all right. Hanging in there. Hiya. Hey, Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, so today we are going to be looking at grief and loss. And uh, we chose this topic because it's so incredibly relevant to the current situation with COVID-19. Um, and just to give you a bit of a teaser for the talk today, we're going to be looking at grief and loss and all the different elements of it, so or, or as many as we can. Um, I think one of the most useful things I always find to do is when we start sessions is to have a look at, you know, the, the kind of word, um, the title of the module. So today, grief, you know, what does grief mean to people? How do people define it? It's a word that's thrown around quite a lot, particularly these days. Um, it's always useful to get a sense of what it means to people. Um, I think following that, it'd be useful to get a sense of what people feel they're grieving. What are the losses that people feel that they're experiencing at this current time? Um, and then kind of following on from that, looking at what are the responses to that grief? What are the responses to those losses that people are feeling? Um, we'll have a look at um, a few different elements of grief um, and then just we'll end by looking at a few models um, that will help people maybe understand the grieving process and give people a bit of a sense of a, a framework. Um, just to underline the session, one of the things that I want to say is that particularly with this topic, grief is different for everyone. There's, there's a particular researcher that says our own grieving processes are like our own individual fingerprints. Um, try not to feel ashamed or critical of the emotions that you're feeling or guilty for feeling the things that you're feeling. Um, you know, like I said, everyone experiences grief very differently here. Um, and again, just before we, we kind of start the chat, one of the things that I wanted to say, which I think is a useful um, thing to bring up here is that, you know, grief involves emotions. And not a lot of people know this, the Latin word of the word emotion is emovere. And emovere means to move out. And to me, it's a really powerful visual. I think there's just something really important to hold on to there, that grief is an emotion and emotions need to move. They need to be moved out rather than pushed down or stifled. So I hope today really helps with that um, and gives you a bit of a sense of getting in touch with some of those feelings, putting words to some of those feelings and kind of working with them in healthier ways. Um, so just to begin with, I'm just curious, everyone, what, what are your senses of the word grief? What does grief mean to you? For me, it's a massive sense of loss. Mm -hmm. Of my own self as well right now. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's, it, well, I hear the word grief and I think of it being a secret. Mm. so some kind of sense of like shame around it oh, totally yeah i mean it's one yeah. thing i wanted to talk about it's like the shame of i think shame and grief are very kind of intertwined mm -hmm. what about other people yeah i think really linked to what liz was saying that it's something very private and personal um that other people can't relate to kind of thing. Mm. It's probably why it's going to be difficult to talk about this right now. But yeah, no, it's kind of, I think it's, that's a really good point, Katie. Mm. 
Um, and like, I just want to sort of second that because it's it's difficult. I feel like I'm in the middle of um, feeling some sort of grief. And so at the moment, it's kind of difficult to be able to put a finger on um, what it is I'm actually feeling and if it is grief or not. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about the level of confusing and conflicting emotions when it comes to the grief, but also in general around this current time, because what's happening is so epically big. I think for me, I would say uh, grief, yeah, loss, basically, because it's loss of what you would have shared the future you could have shared with someone the future that uh, you know isn't there anymore whether that person's ever existed like so if you have a miscarriage or something or if you know or if it's a partner um and and something's happens to them so you don't have that you know future that you thought you would be sharing together so it's that kind of like loss of the potential life that you thought you would have had mm -hmm. and i guess you can kind of like you know, say the same about what's going on now. It's kind of that loss of how bringing into kind of like looking at, at how our normal life was and how much we took it for granted. Like with love, you take you take what you've got for granted until it's been taken away from you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what's interesting, and in a way you've already touched on what I'm about to say, but I think it's worth saying that when you look online, a lot of what's available online is around death of a person. And of course, you know, that that kind of brings on tons of grief and tons of different types of senses of loss. But I think there's just something really important about recognizing we're grieving things that have been taken away from, from us, which, you know, which may not be people like you were saying, Heather, it's the potential for something to happen in the future. We're grieving, you know, a future we never had. Um, so I think, you know, grief is interesting because it's much more kind of nuanced than sometimes people you know, quite often it's just associated with death, but actually there's there's tons and tons of different losses. Um, it might be worth actually kind of going straight into that. What are the feelings of loss people are experiencing now with COVID nineteen? I um, I I think I hadn't really um sort of identified it into something you just said, Bob. About, oh, Heather said as well about something about the future. I feel really furious and frightened and kind of. You know, I don't want to loss, uh, lose all the things I want to do. You know, I, there's so much I want to do in life. And, and I feel that that's kind of slightly been put on pause. Mm. And, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of adjusting to this like, oh, my God, well, this might mean that this won't happen or so on. You know, so I, I think I, I'm feeling a loss of creativity. Mm. And freedom to do those things. Yeah, I mean, it's not sort of so obviously like, oh, I'm, you know, not able to go and play, you know, three rounds of tennis every Saturday, which I obviously don't do. Um, but, you know, it is something about the future and what mm -hmm. I want to do mm. and the, the, the potential for what's happening um, to, uh, yeah, to stop that. Mm. I think... Um... One of the things for me, and it's quite, it's, it's quite, it's just the shopping, going shopping and the queues and the anxieties of people and trying to get food. So what I, we, we take for advantage all the time just to go into the shopping, which now would take, you have to plan it because you have to be in the queue and two metres apart and mm. 
for me, that's it's surreal. It seems really surreal. I've only read about things like this and watched it. So mm-hmm. I, it, for me, that just going to the shop now is really overwhelming. It creates quite an anxiety because I don't want to do it, but you have to do it because yes. everywhere you go, there is a queue. So for me, that's really overwhelming, even when I just see the queues outside all the shops and stuff. I just wanted to kind of pick up on that and just kind of fun, you know, I don't want to make light of it, but I think the other day I went to the shops and I was wearing, you know, mask and gloves and stuff. And, and I just was so angry about having to do that because it just, this bloody mask kept going in my eyes. And then I dropped my basket and my lemons fell out, and like rolled across. It was just so ridiculous. And it was kind of, there was, there was an absurdity to that moment where I just felt the sense of like, oh my God, being able to go to the shop and not even think twice about, you know, having to wear a mask and gloves and 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 everything that 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 goes with that. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting. I was kind of really glad that we were having this session today, um, because like I'm really struggling to be able to pinpoint exactly what this loss and grief it is I'm feeling. Like I haven't yet been able to access my emotions properly um and so yeah you know like i really agree that it is the things the wants and the um you know the the plans that you had for what you wanted to do in the future or just like not so distant future um but there's something bigger and like i i think you know especially today with with this session it's really helpful for, for me because um you know um having to kind of like not for so many years not necessarily accessing your emotions all that kind uh, all that well um it's really hard to pinpoint those feelings of loss and grief mm. do you mind if i ask do you, do you feel like there's a fear of potentially opening the floodgates I think so. I really, do you know what? If you asked me a week ago or two weeks ago, I would have been like, no, no, I feel like that actually this is something we go through, like as human beings in terms mm. of, and, um, you know, this is historical, which, you know, really putting kind of like a spin on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I absolutely, I think there is a fear there. I don't think it's so fearful that I don't want to face it. But it's easier at the moment, like, um, you know, built up. I have these built up mechanisms which allow me not to face grief and loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that links to something uh, Tonya and I were talking about um, the other day about this thing where, like, on one level, I'm grieving the loss of my routine and my structure and the things that kind of the scaffolding I have that helps me manage my life on a day-to-day basis but also those things work to like allow me to like avoid say much deeper feelings of grief that like aren't even about this thing but are mm-hmm. things that happened ages ago that I've never properly dealt with mm-hmm. and like I'm being forced to look at some of that but it's really confusing because I'm so used to glossing over it mm. yeah yeah I yeah I really I find that quite relatable I actually didn't really find this in the literature so I'm kind of making up this term although maybe it does exist but there's definitely something about this idea of like archaic grief that you know we, we haven't grieved for things in the past and I think this current feeling of loss really triggers that so there is this 
real present sense of loss, but it's also triggering something very archaic, something very old. Um, John Heron talks about that. Oh, does he? Yeah. Okay. In the um, copyright John Heron. Yeah, Sensation yeah. Handbook. We talk okay. about it on um, Group Work Day that some group groups are characterised. So, i.e., there's lots of people in that group that have real kind of archaic grief. Okay. Yeah, that happened to them that you know they've never grieved and uh yeah i think i think i think you know we've hit the nail on the head of it with this because i, I kind of suspect this is what's happening for lots of people not just people in you know recovery mm. from addiction but lots of people are having feelings and they're like oh hold on you know it's only because yeah. i couldn't get flour at tesco yeah you know and of course it's not about the flour at tesco yeah, yeah. I once had a cat that I really liked called Minnie and uh, she was always a bit ill and I took her to the vets and had her put down and she died in my arms and my response was totally off the scale. You know, it's like, hey, I was really sad and I really loved her. But, you know, it was like I was crying for, you know, 30 years of not crying. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I'm sort of suspecting lots of people have just followed this. Um, you know, that was a noise, that kind of um, overwhel overwhelming feeling that that's that's okay. Mm. And like you said, I think it's really confusing. You know, I think there's something about like going to the shop and not being able to buy, you know, the brand of mayo that you normally buy or something and, and having a response that can be kind of, like you said, disproportionate to that instance. But it's not about that. And so I think that can feel really confusing because you're people's emotions feel quite unregulated or something of course yeah. and, and of course the instinct when you have an emotion that you don't understand is to shut it down of course yeah it's to go oh don't be so stupid yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. lemons or it's cat or it's you know it's toilet roll or whatever's you know scarce this week um you know and actually the the the, the helpful bit is i think probably seeing how you respond to something and examining it a bit and thinking hold mm. on rather than just kind of dismissing that let, let's think about it mm -hmm. yeah i guess as well some you know you kind of go through life a lot of people if they haven't kind of necessarily had to deal with you know mental health issues or specifically looking after their looking after not their behavior but the way of thinking um you go through emotions in life that you don't necessarily think are like coping mechanisms you know just things you do like you go down the pub and you get drunk with your mates or you go and watch football match and or you go yeah. shopping you know all these things that have been taken away yeah to kind of like suddenly you haven't got a diversion you haven't mm. got the diversions that you had or that you know that you just took for granted you know so it, it kind of would bring up things necessarily that wouldn't wouldn't have been brought up because you're going through your daily emotions and now you can't mm -hmm. do that yeah, and I wonder. I mean, you know, it's. It, I wonder even if it's, it's, it's all those things like you know, going meeting your mates, whatever. But also, kind of for a lot of lot of people um, who know us, you know, it might be going to meetings, and that 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 forms a kind of social function. Um, so it might not. Yeah, it might be that, that that people don't think. Oh, yeah, I go to meetings to kind of, um, you know, look at my addiction. I know that that that, that goes on, but there's also all those kind of those social elements that people might be missing, but they're, 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 that's a way of coping with grief. Sorry, that wasn't very articulate, but... Yeah, no, very much so. Have it Heather's point up there, yeah. 
Yeah, no, they're very much so because you're, you know, because you've got that kind of human human collectiveness that you wouldn't have necessarily in a, you know, like a phone meeting. You yeah. can kind of interact with each other vocally, but then you're missing out on all that 70% of communication that's not just what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we get, we're, we're struggling at the moment because we can't see each other. We're just recording this. So we can't kind of see each other's visual cues mm. and things like that, you know, which is a soothing thing, isn't it? You know, all those human, all those you know, small human interactions soothe us and they, they, they can soothe our, our grief, um, that, that kind of life. They soothe us and those being taken away from us give us a massive sense of loss. You know, it's like you said, you know, it's nice to have this digital contact and to have some way of connecting and, you know, Zoom meetings and stuff like that, but it's not the same. And I think those things being taken away or broken or being fractured or fragmented, I think, again, just leads to this real sense of something not being there that gave you a sense of who you are. I think, And, and that, to me, I think is a really big part of this topic. I think when I was thinking about this and, and my own kind of feelings of loss, there's the feelings of my yoga community being broken apart or my kind of routine being kind of broken or like us as a team being kind of broken apart loads and loads of things and i think for me like all of those little small things add up to this big thing which is my identity and who i feel that i am um and i remember like at one point kind of feeling uh, feel like i've kind of got a lot i've got used to a lot of this stuff now it feels like you know the new norm is kind of settling in quite quick but there was definitely the sense of free falling, the sense of kind of not um, the ground that I've been used to walking on for all these years, suddenly no longer existing. I think, um, sorry, I pressed my mic and it didn't work. Um, I think that idea of like the ground you are, have been used to walking on not existing, for you, Bob, your kind of, your identities identity has been quite established for quite a long time, but for people who might be listening to this that have, sort of relatively new into recovery you know that ground's pretty shaky mm. or pretty new sorry shaky is probably the wrong word but you know I know myself you know my own sense of self in early recovery was very raw I felt like a baby and then you know that's even more frightening when that mm -hmm. that 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 sense of self is is just wiped away you know mm. if you kind of if you're old like me and you've kind of felt like oh yeah I know where I am for many years now you know I've got the kind of resources I feel grateful for um but but yeah if your sense of self is really new that's that's going to be really really frightening mhm mm absolutely what are some of the um kind of emotions or do you know what emotion i mean think a better way to think about this is like what are some of the responses people are having to the loss of which you know there is an emotional response there are behavioral responses there are kind of cognitive responses like the kinds of things that people are thinking like so just thinking about the discussion we just had about what we feel we, we're grieving for how are some of you responding to those things um well, you know, I um, I retreat like into my imagination. So it's like I, I fantasize and like I kind of can um, back away from reality really, really easily. Like uh, it's a complete and utter coping mechanism, um, but it's just kind of like uh, I can go into the imaginary world kind of zone. And, you know, on top of that, um, 
I build up, and this is like really behavioral, um, but you know, I build up barriers. Um, I put big kind of walls in between my feelings and myself. And, you know, it's something that, you know, I obviously have done a lot of work on um, and this, that and the other, but those I think are, you know, still my go-to kind of responses when I am feeling emotionally threatened. Can I just ask how you feel about those being your responses? You know, um, I would say that in certain cases, they can be helpful short term. Um, so like, you know, it's okay that when you've kind of, I don't know whatever's happened, if you've had an argument with somebody, I don't know, whatever the situation is, you can retreat into kind of like, you know, fairy tale land or whatever. And, you know, that helps, it's short term. But like, you know, what I feel like, and me and you, Bob, we've worked together for kind of like, you're my supervisor, you know a lot about this, you kind of understand um, the, you know, we've spoken a lot about this, but like long-term, like I still feel that, you know, actually I have some awareness of it now, but I still do it and that makes me feel powerless. Mm. I feel really powerless at the moment. Um, mm. So that's, yeah, that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say me, for me, the first two weeks I was really, um, I was really lost. I felt like a child again. I felt really powerless, as Bex just said. And, um, you know, I felt a little bit out of control of my emotions because I just kept crying all the time, like randomly. Um, and then when I sort of looked at that, um, I feel that I'm I'm crying about stuff that, has also happened years back as well because I've never had to sit with myself as long as mm. I have this last couple of weeks. But now this week, I think I've sort of my response is to really sort of get get some control back in my household. So trying to keep a routine going, and that's my way of 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 getting through this right now. The first two weeks was pretty much I felt like my whole life was just ripped away from me and I felt like really really fragile um but then looking at my responses as well is to be busy and to I like to, I need to be in control like a lot of other people will feel this and so for me I think I've had to implement control in the household mm. might be worth saying at this point I just kind of, you know, those words you just said were actually really powerful, you know, this it was ripped away from you. Mm. And I think like one of the, because I do the down trauma, one of the things that unites every kind of um, event which, which leads to some kind of traumatic reaction in the body is that it's unexpected, you know? And I think the very fact that it just comes out of nowhere and, you know, rips something away from you or happens to you in this very unexpected way is really traumatic yeah you know and i think and like you said you know this stuff can kind of bring up you know past stuff and past trauma so i'll say something about that a bit later on because i think there's an interesting um kind of de definitional description of that particular type of grief where it's like one type of traumatic um event or kind of grief response over the top of another one over the top of another one but yeah it's um it's, it's massive links to, to, to sort of what we've been talking about archaic stuff as well because just hearing kind of Bex and Tanya speak um, I 
um, my response is I get really angry and furious. And as a child, I was really furious. And I think I was furious as, as a child uh, because, um, you know, I was neglected and um, I'm just, it, I mean, you know, it wasn't a cognitive thing. It was a pure visceral, emotional um, <laughs> fury at not being looked after. I'm laughing because it just, you know, I was really, really cross as a child. And um, I just go like, fuck this. I get really, really angry and I'm mainly angry at the government. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of see it as a way of coping with grief and um it's it's an old way of coping with grief it, you know it's um it's uh um it's it, it's archaic what does that what does that do for you like in a way i'm just kind of curious you know what bex was saying around kind of like i mean all of these different responses like every single one serves a purpose like i guess like i'm curious about like what does the anger do for you and and what does it feel like can you can you also maintain that and sustain it like how does it how does it kind of i don't know like how do you sustain that yeah well you can't um yeah. but you know you can't i mean it, i mean this this session is going to overlap with the next one we're going to do which is about uh you know feeling emotionally overwhelmed because these responses we're talking about you know come into those four f responses of fight, fight, freeze, you know, fawn. And it, this is a fight response, right? Um, and it, it, it's, you can't sustain it because mm. it just exhausts you. Mm. So um, at some point, I think I just get pissed off at myself, bored of myself, um, and become, you know, sort of like... Um, Oh, I just sort of think, oh, just fuck it, you know. Don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably giving in response, but yeah. Well, it's also probably kind of like finishing your energy reserves to sustain it. So at some point, you just you, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What about other people? Like your your current responses that you can name? I guess. Um... I guess kind of like knowing that I have to kind of like really dig deep with my um, coping mechanisms because I haven't kind of got those things like oh just go to a, go to a, to see a friend you know get kind of that love and support from friends mm -hmm. um, and you know not been able to go to work and do the things that kind of I don't know, validate me, make me feel like I'm doing something useful mm -hmm. in my life. Um, so it's kind of like very much doing extremes, like tight cleaning, cleaning, mopping, hoovering, you know, stuff, not excessively, but... Um, yeah, just kind of being aware that that's where I'm putting my my energy and, you know, listen to a lot of music really loudly, dancing around and kind of exercising and stuff like physic, physical stuff. Um, it seems to be sort of helping, but it's stuff that's not something that I generally would do, <laughs> I guess. Mm. And I think it's that thing, like Bex was saying, it's like, you know, not really 
being in touch with my emotions, but kind of wary that, wary that they're, you know, they're, they're there and there's a potential to, you know, for kind of like to drag me down into the negative ones mm. um, and being quite kind of careful oh, to not, to not go there, I guess. And, you know, and in, and, and in doing so, kind of being constructive in a kind of weird way because I'm kind of doing lots of stuff not kind of like finishing much I'm finding it very difficult to focus mm. on things I can't really concentrate I like sit and watch the telly you know uh, of an evening uh, uh, or film or, or stuff I'm kind of doing a, quite a few things at once like fitting around uh, yeah are That's people it. sleeping okay yeah, I'm sleeping. Oh, yeah, I'm sleeping well. I'm, I'm exhausted from oh. <laughs> Sorry, I am. Okay. Um, yes, I was getting up early, but I've actually started to sleep until nine o'clock, which is like a... Whoa! Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, Tanya, you, you... I know, I couldn't believe it. Breaking records. Layings in the morning, I couldn't believe it. For those of you who don't know, Tanya... <laughs> notoriously gets up rather earlier than the the rest of the team. Pop and Beck, actually. Yeah, um, I second, second that, Tonya, because uh, you know we're both early birds. Like I, I, I love a morning me, but these days, like I just I can't I can't wake up. Like I find I really I really struggle waking up. Like I feel just emotionally knackered. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not um, sleeping very well, and I never, I've, ne I've never been a great sleeper anyway. But um, I don't know. I think it's, I think being confined so much is making me notice it a lot more. I think maybe because I, one of my coping mechanisms used to be just going out and being busy, and whilst. Thankfully, like I am able to be at home without driving myself too mad, like nowadays compared to like a lot of the self-destructive behaviours that I used to do if I was just left alone at home. Um, I like I'm used to being a lot busier during the day, which in a way meant that like I was just really knackered and would when I finally got to bed, my I would just like my head would hit the pillow and I go straight to bed. I'm really struggling to get to sleep and stay asleep um, at the moment. And I'm noticing it a lot more. Um, I think just because I don't spend as much energy during the day. Mm. Well, you kind of just destroyed my theory, Katie. Oh, no. Uh, no, I'm joking. But I think it's just something we were talking about the other day around kind of like one of the things that I'm really noticing is, is I'm similar to you. Like I would have a very busy schedule and be kind of running around and I've got lots of energy kind of generally but I would just then get home and kind of crash and if I was ever at home normally like at, at the weekend and didn't do anything like I wouldn't be expending the energy so I wouldn't sleep but I'm finding I'm having really 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 deep sleeps and I think one of the things we were talking about the other day is that even though a lot of people are confined and well I mean everyone's confined but you know obviously responding in different ways but I think a lot of people there's this emotional kind of um the emotional toll of what's going on whether it's kind of news or just thinking about stuff or even actually pushing stuff down you know that takes energy as well and I think a lot of people 
are expending a lot of their kind of what would have been their physical energy in this very emotional way, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, Because it just feels like a lot of people are sleeping longer or they're sleeping kind of more deeply or... Um, but yeah, there's obviously going to be exceptions to that. Um, it'd be interesting to just kind of just pause for a moment and just kind of um, introduce you to, uh, some of you may know some of this stuff, but um, it was really interesting kind of delving into grief literature the other day and looking at um, researchers have basically kind of come up with various descriptions of grief. And I think it's the, quite interesting. There was tons. I was really surprised at how many there are. Um, and I think they're kind of useful and, you know, like anything, you know, the, the, the different things I'm going to say, they provide a bit of a name for a type of grief or a label for a type of grief. But, you know, it's, it's just a label. And we're more kind of complicated than that. And I think there's there's overlap and, um, you know, so to try to avoid, you know, tagging yourself with a particular label and then diagnosing yourself as like, oh, this is what I've got now. But if some of these descriptions help you understand an element or an aspect of your grief, then I hope that that's what they will do. So um, one of the ones I wanted to introduce to you first was normal grief. Um, and that's basically the kind of when people are grieving for some kind of loss, but it's not debilitating grief. There is actually a term for that as well, which is called chronic grief, where um, people basically just can't get up in the morning and can't kind of function. Um, and then another one, which I think is worth bringing up now, is this idea that both you, Liz, and Heather talked about when we first started, which is about this kind of sense of grief about things that you've lost that would, would have happened in the future. Um, and it's called anticipatory grief. Um, so that's the sense of loss for things that would have been. And I'm kind of thinking a lot, I mean, I don't know, Tonya, like with, with your daughter, like, her education as she was doing her GCSEs and just her education and the sense of her future. I mean, I can't imagine what she must be going through in terms of what she feels she's lost in terms of education. Now you said that she's finding it really hard. Yeah, no, she is. She's, and, and she's, I think, definitely feeling that anticipationary because of her results are going to be coming in. And so all the work that she's done is not actually going to be sort of based on that. It's going to mm. be based on other stuff so she's really you know prom things for she's left school the other day sort of so yeah lots of stuff has sort of changed for her and she's i think she's got mm. quite a lot of that anticipatory grief anticipatory yeah. yeah i couldn't work out like in in america they say anticipatory um, and I'm just kind of guessing we say anticipatory, but I could be completely wrong. Um, another type of grief that's worth mentioning here is is inhibited grief. And again, kind of connects to what you were saying, Beck. So this is the sense of kind of um, inhibiting or, or kind of pushing down the, the emotions related to grief, um, you know, in a way to kind of be able to function to get on with your day. But I think one of the things is for a lot of these things, whether it's like a person pushing their emotions down or whether it's like you were saying, Liz, kind of being angry in the short term, there's an absolute purpose. There's a kind of healthy function to those things. They're called adaptive responses. But when those things go on long term, they become maladaptive. Um, so as an example, with inhibited grief, if that is something which you know, you, 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 as a person, you're pushing down your emotions related to grief continuously. So you're never allowing the grieving process to even start. Um, 
you know, go back to what I said about the root word of emotion, you know, these emotions which need to move have no motion whatsoever, but they will try to come out. So what you see here is people um, get a lot of insomnia or they have like digestive problems because they're, you know, the stress is going to their stomach or they're kind of grinding their teeth at night and getting migraines and things like that. So It's kind of interesting where like the mind wants to kind of push something down, but the body still has the response. Uh, we were, as a team, we were um, discussing, as we do, we were discussing uh, Freud, Freud and defense mechanisms uh, the other day online. And um, actually, you know, what, what, what you're just discussing or talking about, Bob, is, is the return of the repressed. And in, in mm -hmm. Freud's language, it's like stuff that you repressed pops up again, you know, like a mole style. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, good visual. Um, this, the, another one that I, I already kind of mentioned it before when you were talking, Tonya, is this idea of cumulative grief. So you may already be grieving for something in the past. Um, consciously or unconsciously if it's archaic um and so cumulative grief is this idea of you know another layer of grieving taking place on top of something that's that you're already grieving for um of course you can you know have multiple layers so you can imagine the kind of uh, impact of that is huge um and then the final one which is you know really relevant is this idea of collective grief And so collective grief is something that like a society might go through or a nation might go through, like when there's been natural disasters, Hurricane Katrina or like a tsunami or an earthquake or something like 9-11, so kind of terrorist attacks and things like that. So there is this kind of real sense of like a whole nation, for instance, going through something together, kind of grieving together, trying to kind of process something together. And I was thinking a lot about this and just thinking about how when this has happened before, to my mind, collective grief has always had, as far as I know, I mean, I guess there are anomalies like Spanish flu and stuff, but generally in kind of recent memory, they tend to be pinned to one event. So it's like 9-11 obviously happened on 9-11 and then you know there was the kind of um what, what you call it the kind of um group help me out what's the word like when people kind of came together and and marked the death you know almost kind of like a collective kind of funeral um for people that had died you know there was a real kind of um a moment in time where people came together were able to grieve put a full stop at the end of that and then kind of in a way carry on with their lives Um, a similar thing happened with Princess Diana, you know, like she died and then there was the funeral and this massive, massive, massive outpouring of grief. Um, and I think what's incredibly different about the current situation is that there is no, there's no time to pin this on. We have no idea when this is going to end. You know, it's just this kind of really open-ended collective grief. Can, can I just say something that um, you just made me think of with those examples? Because... Um, with Princess Diana and also like 9-11, um, I was reading something um, about Judith Butler um, and she has written something that's about the kinds of lives that are grievable and that um, when it comes to like public displays of grief that that can be... Um, almost like um, an interesting thing to look out for, basically, that, um, that 
that like in 9-11 people were grieving like American citizens who've been killed by these terrorist attacks but we don't publicly grieve like all the people that have been devastated by other forms of American military intervention and like just what you said then about what we're going through at the moment the kind of lives that are grievable you know it's a lot of um, elderly people, a lot of like poorer people in society. And <clears throat> I wonder whether that's got something to do with it, that, that it's not a, pub a publicly shared grief because um, a lot of the people that are suffering are, are like a lot of the people who are invisible a lot of the time in society. Yep, nice point. Um, um, really, uh, one of the things that makes me really angry and is that there's lots of discussion on Twitter at the moment about the language that the government's adopting about Boris Johnson, Johnson uh, fighting the virus and people, you know, being heroic and, uh, you know, strong. And actually one of the things about grief, and we, we talked earlier about the shame around grief, you know, the shame is around vulnerability and it makes me really angry because it is, if there is, if there is a kind of, you know, discourse or a discussion about how uh, really strong people are fighting this it's like oh what that the people that die um aren't strong enough then oh they just died because they didn't fight enough you know absolutely shocking infuriates me sorry about that there you go and also i was thinking that like those instances of diana i didn't feel any grief when diana died i remember it really well because I, I was somewhere particular when it happened actually i was stoned on heroin when it happened and i was up all night and i switched on the television and it was there and i was just like oh fucking hell you know um but actually a really perhaps a more helpful example of grief is hillsborough and liverpool and actually, that was also combined with a sense of injustice as well. And it's interesting the way that collective grief has formed a real strength in that city. That's really good. And the, and the Grenfell example, actually, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of one of the things that, again, with, with these, I've, I've just realised the word I was thinking about earlier was kind of memorials. So <clears throat> whether it's Grenfell or... or um, Hillsborough or Princess Di, I mean, I guess the other thing, just really quickly to say, it's kind of connected to those points, but also kind of slightly um, on a slightly different note, is this idea of um, one of the things that's being denied to people is the option or the ability to have, you know, the ability to have a kind of a collective mourning of something, so like a funeral or to be there when someone dies. Um, you know, these kind of rituals that we would, we have in society to be able to mourn a loss really aren't there anymore and that's going to have an impact or people are going to have to find kind of new and creative and different ways to do it so um <clears throat> just a bit conscious of the time so i wanted to um just quickly kind of on the finish line so i wanted to just kind of have a look at a couple of models to help people maybe understand the process they're going through in terms of grieving. I don't want to spend too long on this, it would be kind of too overly theoretical. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of three that kind of stood out for me. Um, one of them, the word is kind of just really annoyingly kind of cold and technical, but it's this, this uh, model called the dual process model. 
Um, and the dual process model of grief basically says that there are two kind of modes of functioning when it comes to grieving. And we flip between them kind of a lot. So it can be kind of maybe from day to day, but it can be from kind of minute to minute. Um, and I just thought it was useful to bring this one up particularly because it was something about, so one of the modes is called loss orientation. Again, kind of not a particularly helpful term, I don't think. But so loss orientation relates to um, the mode of operation, which is related to um, expressing the range of emotions relating to grief um, and, and relating to the loss. And the other one is called restoration orientation, which is kind of more you just trying to adjust to kind of adjust externally to the loss and kind of having to get on with your day to day life and, and meeting the demands of kind of day to day life. And I, I found that quite helpful because I think a lot of people are feeling like they need they should be better at grieving or they should be better at expressing their emotions and, and kind of actually forgetting that, you know, there's a real kind of um, practical element of like also having to get on with our day today functioning and all that that requires of us. Um, so so that's kind of one model. So this idea of kind of actually flipping between those two modes is actually really normal and really healthy, according to this, um, these two people. Um, really, really quick mention of Kubler-Ross. So Kubler-Ross kind of couldn't do grieving and loss theory without mentioning her name. Um, Kubler-Ross, famous for the five stages of grief, um, originally called the five stages of hearing catastrophic news. Not the catchiest uh, name of a model in the world, so she changed it to the five stages of loss um, or the five stages of grief. Um, and so those five stages she talks about are denial, anger, which we talked about earlier, bargaining, depression, and she said the final stage was acceptance. Um, later on in her life, she did say that the grieving process isn't linear. Um, and there isn't kind of, a, you know, a time frame attached to it. I think initially she she had put one, but now, well, towards the end of her life, she said there wasn't. Um, so one of the things that I think is useful to know about or to, to understand about this is that people go from stage to stage and can kind of, you know, flick between them. So you might go from kind of anger to acceptance, but then back to anger again, or, you know, bargaining to depression to acceptance and then back. So I think there's just... Something helpful about, I think, those those different stages being kind of identified. Um, I used to always think that the one that was missing from here was guilt. Um, and I think she, when you start reading, I've never read any of her books, but I think she does kind of talk about that. But I think that's also something kind of the kind of the guilt and also the shame um, is involved in that process as well. Um, anything people want to say before I move on? about those no i i really identify with the dual process model mm -hmm. i feel like sort of fleeting positive negative positive negative quite quite a lot yeah i mean i guess you know just to say that actually both of those are positive yeah and i feel that as well i don't feel sort of you know i think um it's quite a healthy process that I'm sort of going through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost a bit like practical, emotional and practical, emotional, and actually both of those things are kind of really important. Yeah, because I think it's quite important to, 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 well, to, to actually feel our emotion as well and understand mm -hmm. so that we don't get lost in it. Yeah. 
Um, and just there's another model, which I mean, all of these are going to be in the handout that accompanies this chat. So there's a model which it's got a slightly um, annoying and cringeworthy acronym called TIA, because obviously we're talking about sad things. Um, but so this is a guy called Worden, and he basically kind of um, identifies these four different stages and he calls them the tasks of grief. Um, and he said the first one, T, is to accept the reality of the loss. So, you know, in a way, part of Kubler-Ross's um, kind of model is this whole denial aspect. And this is saying, you know, you need to bloody well accept what's going on. Um, the second one, E, is to experience the pain of the loss. So, again, Tom, you were saying about the importance of feeling your emotions and having a space and creating a space where you allow yourself to feel the pain of the loss because um, there is pain connected to, to those losses. Um, the third stage is to adjust to the new environment without the lost person or the lost object. And then the last one is R, which is to reinvest in the new reality. Um, and there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, the new reality is such an unknown to us. It was a bit of a chat we we're having earlier there's something about we we have no idea what this new reality is going to be um but in terms of this model one of the things that i think they're trying to get across here is at this uh, this last stage is some some people call it post-traumatic growth so it's kind of you know the difference between coming out of this with some sense of post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress um and this idea of kind of hopefully finding meaning and then investing in this meaning so he talks about reinvesting in this new reality um and i think there's just something about trying to kind of yeah invest energy into this new meaning that hopefully people are able to find there's um as you're talking about just just reminded of um something where there are certain plants in the Australian outback that only grow after fire. Mm. Uh, so it's a kind of nature, man, it's nature uh, doing its thing. I mean, you know, obviously this is not related to the, the catastrophic fires they had last, last year or this year. But, um, you know, there, there are kind of organisms or plants, plants organisms, there are mm -hmm. plants that need the, need the bushfires to, um, to grow. There you go. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's part of, I mean, I guess maybe you're going to talk about this in the next session, but kind of part of what I'm kind of really feeling is like being overwhelmed by information because I'm actually really gripped by everything that's going on. I feel like I want to read kind of loads of articles about different things, but there is definitely like a lot of the stuff that I'm reading about is is how this current situation is almost a bit of a kind of shaking up of the snow globe, you know, a kind of a snow globe that really needed to be shaken up and trying to get a sense of, you know, what configuration things will fall into and, and you know, desperately resisting the urge for things to fall back into the same kind of, you know, patterns or grooves as before. So this idea of kind of, you know, crisis can bring opportunity rather than crisis, just meaning crisis. I think something that I've been thinking about for myself for the past few days, because we've been like discussing as a team grief, but also these other emotions is just like how important hope is 
for to get the other side of grief kind of thing and to feel um like for me anyway it's like um i hope is feels important to kind of as a motivator as like a reason to keep going even though there are lots of unknowns so um yeah i don't know where i'm going with it it just it feels like that's something that i want to explore for myself as like a not a way to like paper over grief but like as a nice kind of supportive uh thing to explore like rather than feel stuck or overwhelmed um by grief yeah mm -hmm. i guess as well um you know we've been kind of taught for the last 30 years that to you know be to be individualistic to think about ourselves you know not worry about other people there's no such thing as society all that kind of stuff and you know this has just taken us to realize that we we have power amongst ourselves our actions have consequences among everyone mm -hmm. else you know so it's kind of like that thing of like you're not you can't ever be alone you know in this world because we are all human beings and we're all sharing the same experience to yeah. a certain extent yeah wonderful i think one of the and it relates to what i know that i think we want we want to do um with these these kind of you know um recordings podcasts that we're going to put out is that you know we, we are just people in the middle of this talking about what's happening we're not experts we're people that kind of know a bit about psychology because it's what we do but it, and then we're going to use that but actually it you know i think that the aim is very much for us just to come together as best we can um and just to be human with other humans is incredibly mm -hmm. powerful and try to make sense of things together yeah totally yeah I think just kind of picking up on the hope thing and what you were saying as well, Heather, I think um, it feels like, yeah, this is kind of like a, maybe not a reminder, but it's like a kind of like, it's a way of being, what's the word? It's a way of kind of being shown what's possible and kind of who we can be when the structures around us start to dissolve. Like, I think like that to me is kind of what I'm, kind of gripped by and, and, I, and I guess you know the things that I've seen in terms of what people are doing and have been doing for each other I think are really inspiring and that gives me a sense of hope yeah very much so I think you know you can see that people have been like stepping up they've been looking after each other there's been like this huge growth in that in mutual age groups where people are going out of their way to help complete strangers you know because we haven't had necessarily the you know to have the really dangerous ineptitude of the of people in control going against you know world health organization decrees and advice and it's not been kind of like a straightforward way of being told the best way to do to do things and people get kind of confused by those mixed messages um but it's kind of that thing of like that common sense thing of knowing how you can help someone else and, and kind of 
doing that anyway. So people, you know, kind of stepping up. Mm. Alrighty. Well, I think it's probably a good time to end. And just to remind everyone that um, there's going to be a handout attached to this topic and we'll put on a few other suggestions for kind of further reading and research and we discovered yesterday that Groundhog Day was apparently based on Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief. I uh, may revisit that myself. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.